0: You know, when I was growing up, there were, there were two Christmas characters that sort of held my imagination <clears throat> more than others. The first, of course, was Santa Claus. Um, I remember as a child being the most um, fascinated by the sheer logistical challenge of this portly fellow, kind of uh, doing the delivery service he did on one night of the year. The other characters, though, were the angels, because there really is no place in Scripture where we see uh, angels' involvement from, um, uh, from Scripture than the Christmas story. But what I think ended up happening, intended to happen, is that I kind of put Santa and the angels sort of in the same category. You know, Santa lives lives in the far reaches of our imagination, right? The place where magic and wonders live. The angels, though, occupy a place that though we don't have visible access to, on numerous occasions in scripture, it overlaps with the visible world. So they're clearly different, Santa and the angels, but they don't need to live in the same imaginative space. But the truth is, the the angels are part of this very rich tapestry of how Christians think about the world. Yeah, they're mysterious, of course, but they're also very powerfully present uh, at some crucial turning points in humankind's history. So the question then is, who are the angels? Well, there's lots of ways to answer that. You can say, first of all, that they are the group of creatures that form the advisory council, the heavenly council around God's throne that both confer with him and actually execute his decrees. We find that in the Old Testament, they're often the people that are referred to as lowercase g gods in the Old Testament. We could also say that they're messengers who not only bring tidings to God's people, but they also enact his will on his behalf. But for this morning, I want to give them a different title. I want to submit to you that angels, in some ways, are spectators. That's what they are. In other words, they are characters who are watching this great story that God is unfolding through the Bible. And it's been going on since the beginning of the creation. Uh, In Job 38, 4 through 7, we read that when God laid the foundation of the earth from the beginning, it says, quote, "...the morning stars sang together, and the sons of God shouted for joy." It's almost like there's this heavenly bleacher set, right? Where God is displaying his wisdom and and, and the angels are cheering him on as he does. Or maybe you're sitting in in a movie theater or some epic film and the angels are by each other sort of elbowing each other being like, oh, this is gonna be good. That's the angels. But in the passage that we're looking at this morning, we get very specific information about exactly what it is that they love to watch. What is it that's captured them? Look at verse 12, those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Think about that line. There is something that so fascinates and captivates the angels that of all their potential spectator sports, this is the number one. This is what they'd love to see the most. So yeah, the angels are mysterious, but they're, they're not mysterious in what it is that motivates them to spectate. Because we get that very vividly in verse 10. Look what it says. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. There it is. It is grace that fascinates the angels. And I don't think there's any more essential word to grasp what the angels are obsessing over than this word grace. And so much so that it is one of the Christian distinctives. Every other world religion is based on what you do. Christianity is something that you receive, it comes to you, you don't go and earn it. And so am I right that I don't think Christians have many words that we have in our vocabulary that are more precious to us than that word grace? And the reason is, is because we're in good company, because the angels love it too. And so what I want to do this morning is to try to unpack just what 1 Peter 1 says about what about this grace makes it so fascinating to the angels, so three things this morning. First of all, I want to see grace anticipated. Secondly, grace declared. And then thirdly, grace scrutinized. Okay? So grace anticipated. Look carefully at verse 10 again. Because Peter talks about the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Now look, Peter is giving us a wonderful hints to the orthodox view of the Bible. Because now we know how the angels came to appreciate the wonder of grace, they found it in the Bible. It was contained in the pages of scripture, so much so that Christians have become used to saying that the Gospel is what is contained in the Bible. We could even speak of the two simultaneously can 't we there 's often a misunderstanding though, when people get to this point in the Bible because they don 't understand what it actually is peter 's stressing to us that there were human agents that were involved in the formation of the Bible. This is important to correct like. We do not believe in Christianity that God sort of I don't know, zapped some people and they sort of magically started dictating the Bible to his people. No, the Bible didn't come about because these authors were, I don't know, in a trance, you know, and a, something moved my hand. Boom, the Bible. No, when Peter says that these authors searched out what they were writing, it means that they were involved in the process They were engaged in the writing of scripture. They didn't lose control or cognition, far from it. It means that what they wrote bears the marks of their personality, of their experiences, of their personal histories. It comes out in the writing of the Bible. So there's a very human element to scripture. But on the other hand, it's also true that the entire process was overshadowed and overseen by the Holy Spirit. So that it was ensured that what came out of them was what we can truly call God's very word. Peter goes on to sort of make this explicit in his second letter, right after 1 Peter. 2 Peter 1.21 when he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that balance there? Men spoke, right? It was their thoughts. It was their history. Their experiences. But as they did, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, overshadowing it all. Now, it's okay to be thinking to yourself, who cares? And what does this have to do with the angels? Well, look at verse 11. These men were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Look, Peter's clearly saying that what was motivating these writers, the prophets, was that they saw Jesus. And it was the Holy Spirit that was helping them see it this way. One commentator put it this way. Jesus is not simply the one of whom the prophets speak. He is the one who speaks through the prophets. The prophets spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who inspired them is the Spirit of Christ. Like it says in Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. You see the connection? Okay, now put all those pieces together. That means that the angels were fascinated by grace because all of it met in the person of Jesus. It is Jesus ultimately that holds these people's attention. And what that means is, is that when you look at the whole story of the Bible that the angels are watching, it's all about Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson did a sermon on angels a while back that I listened to and prep for this. And he said this, he said, the angels recognize that something is about to happen. They hear the father say to the son, go. The son says, I'm going. The Holy Spirit says, I'm going with you. But then God says to the angels as well, go when he's born. Go to him when he's finished being tempted by the devil. Go to him in Gethsemane when he's facing the terror of death. Little wonder that when Jesus was on the cross, he would say that he could call legions of angels to come and rescue him. As though they were peering over the balcony of heaven, ready to twitch to come to Jesus' rescue. I love that. The little part of me that wishes when you read that old story, like, I kind of wish they had showed up, right? But here's the point that we make that means that every passage of Scripture is about the gospel. We can talk about the Bible and the gospel simultaneously, they're the same thing. Jesus is the point of the law, He is the point of the prophets. He is the fulfillment of the law code. Jesus is the true king that King David only foreshadowed. Jesus is the personification of wisdom that comes to us in the poetry books of the Old Testament. In other words, once you start to read the Bible as if it's about Jesus, you'll find it come alive in a way in which it never could before. It's endlessly rich because it's a bottomless well of insight about him. And the angels are wondering and gazing and fixated on it. So that's the grace that was anticipated in Scripture, first of all. But secondly, we see a grace declared. As there's a vital aspect of the gospel that I think often gets missed, um, especially by the people who, who, who study it the most oftentimes, And that's this. Look at verse 12 again. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. All right, highlight that word good news because that's the same word that we have translated elsewhere in the New Testament as gospel. That's what good news is. But look at how Peter phrases it. He says, the things that were announced to you. It's really interesting. If you literally translate that word announced, you could translate it as angeled you. (laughs) In other words, an angel is one who came with an announcement. An angel comes to sort of bring news. He brings a report. And this is so hard to grasp oftentimes because the gospel is first and foremost that. It's a report. It's a declaration I heard one preacher put it this way. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. But it seems like the inertia of our souls, we want it just to be good advice. That's what we want. You know, look, think about it. In ancient Near Eastern history, we have some writings that show that a messenger, an angelos in Greek, was actually uh, paralleled by what was known as the town crier, the herald, Right? That's how you got news. He would come into town and say, hey, good news, something has happened. But of course, one pastor said the heralds did not come into town just to give advice. The heralds didn't stand up and say, hey, good news, uh, diversify your portfolio, or good news, you know, crime doesn't pay. That's not what a herald did. The herald came into town and he said, look, there's good news that you've got to grasp in order to be changed. But if you don't get this, you're gonna miss something that's so huge and unique about Christianity. Because in so many other religions, the teaching, the ethical instruction, is the point of the religion. You want enlightenment? Here's the path to follow. Here are the rules you must keep. These are the five disciplines that you must master. But only in Christianity do you get this most essential, fascinating message to be one of a fact of a report that's being gathered and being re- given out to people. Uh, you know, as illustra- by way of illustration of this, I was listening recently to a clip uh, from the Joe Rogan podcast. One of the number one podcast in the world, by the way. And he had on Matthew McConaughey, who, you know, fancies himself a bit of a spiritual person. Uh, but eventually the topic sort of wound its way around to the Bible. And what I began to realize was, McConaughey could not more perfectly enunciate the way our culture wants to understand the Bible. Listen to what he says. He says, I really don't know what to do with the magic tricks in the Bible. I mean, how do I appropriate that into my life? But there's philosophies and proverbs and teachings that are very valid and helpful that we can all be reminded of, and we find those in the Bible. Joe Rogan responds. He says, I think it's almost impossible to figure out what the Bible's trying to say. It's all open to interpretation. But it's also open to manipulation. And that's when I have a real problem with the Bible, when it's used to separate and exclude and marginalize and judge people. But for those who've come to grasp it, there's actually some people who think it's good too. And there's a lot of valuable lessons in that book. To which McConaughey responds, 100%. Hey, what did our fathers teach us? Sometimes you find out that the messenger and the message weren't in simpatico. I worked for a little while to try to do a Matthew McConaughey impression, and I thought that would not go over well at all. But doesn't that sound like him? They're not in simpatico. But do I throw out the good stuff just because it came in a bad package? No. You take the stuff that works for you. All right, that's it. (laughs) That is the usefulness of the Bible to this culture because they're looking at it saying, forget all the stuff they say actually happened. Who cares about that? What's the good teachings in there? And we're trying to say, you just took out the most important part, (laughs) that if abstracted from the teachings, will do the opposite of what you want it to do. Not only that, haven't you just turned the Bible into something that you will always be the judge of? So in that sense, if the Bible can't judge you, and you can only judge it, all it is is a wax nose. You've made something into your image, (laughs) right? Right? In other words, it's almost as if the Bible then becomes a mirror that's just going to show you yourself every time you look into it. Can the Bible cross your will at all? That's worth asking, isn't it? Can it challenge me and speak to me something that I need to know? Here's what Peter is suggesting. The gospel is not even first and foremost about you at all. It's first about Jesus first, something he did And see, if you don't read the Bible that way, you're just going to miss it. And what McConaughey thinks that the Bible is giving us is some helpful moral principles, some of which he'll keep, some of which he maybe won't. And look, I'm not denying that there's not lots of moral instruction in the Bible. What what else was our Ten Commandments study about this fall, right? But when you read those commandments isolated from the Bible's central message, it's going to leave you crushed. In other words, there'll be no joy on the inside that will enable you to keep those things. Leaves us untransformed. But here's the deal. If the Bible is first about Jesus and news about him, the more you fixate on him, the more interesting he becomes. And the more interesting he becomes, the more beautiful he becomes. And suddenly I begin responding out of a transformation of seeing the object differently. Instead of the Bible being just a big finger that's wagging at me, right? That's the key to Christian transformation. And what's fascinating is the angels, they can't get enough of it. They're overwhelmed by it. So grace anticipated in Scripture. Grace declared uh, uh, in Jesus. But thirdly and finally, grace scrutinized. What do I mean by that? Well, this brings me to the last point. Because there's two key words that are worth highlighting there in verse 12. That if you can really grasp that meaning, you'll sort of get to this, the Christian definition of transformation. Notice what it says there. Things into which angels long to look. Highlight those two words, longing and looking. First of all, what does it mean for the angels to look? Okay, word study here. That word actually means to gaze, to meditate on. It doesn't just mean to glance at. It means to obsess over, to have a passion for. And so what Peter is saying is is when you look, uh, literally, it means to stoop down and look into," which is really interesting. This word that Peter uses is only used four other times in the New Testament. Three of those times, it's used to describe Peter and the others as they stooped and looked into the tomb, the empty tomb, after the resurrection. There is no way that's an accident. Peter has to be thinking to himself, as I come to look into, I'm doing the same thing that the angels are doing that I did when I looked into that resurrection tomb for the first time. I'm amazed by it. I'm overwhelmed by it. By the way, the fourth time that it's used is in James chapter one, where James says, if a man beholds his face in a mirror, what does it mean to behold? Well, it's, again, it's more than glance. It means it holds your attention. It holds your gaze. It's something that you study and examine. And the older you get, the more depressing that look gets, right? I'm just checking to see if you're listening. We're getting halfway through there, right? Okay, so now combine the looking with that word longing. What's that one about? Now you get something incredibly powerful because that word longing is the Greek word you've heard me translate before epithumia. And it's a good time to take a deep dive on this word. Epithumia is two Greek words. The second part, thumia, is describing a powerful inward explosion of desire. So much so that even without epi, thumia is oftentimes translated as wrath in the Bible. It's that kind of explosiveness, right? But when you stick the prefix epi in front of thumia, it takes on this heightened form of a powerful life determining inward desire. So much so that elsewhere, it's translated as lust. Not just sexual in nature, but you understand why they made that connection. In other words, Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, Jesus uses the word epithumia when he's sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper. And he says, I have greatly desired, I have epithumia to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Okay? It's an over, it's a life-determining, powerful desire. So here's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying the angels are obsessing over the grace of God and the gospel. They stare at it. They stare at it in the same way that you would stare at someone that you find to be beautiful or attractive. They stare at it like someone does on on an evening at a fire. You ever just sort of stared into the fire and suddenly shook yourself wondering how long you had been there? They stare at it like someone does, like a child does a kaleidoscope. For the first time, he looks inside and he twists it around and loses track of time because the shapes change and the nuances come out. Here's the point. To the degree that you relate to the experience of the angels, you'll unlock the key to what being a Christian really is. I actually go further. You'll also unlock the key of what it means to be the church. Church. I hope hope you are encouraged on a regular basis to pause in the middle of a service and think to yourself, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Is it because of some social custom? Is it because there's great business contacts to be made? Is it because I want to be an upstanding member of the community? Fine, fine. But to some degree, the Bible defines the fellowship of God's people as those who have said, Ooh, uh, you discovered it too? (laughs) Did, Did you see that? If you watch that? The fellowship of God's people is intended to be knit together by a mutual fascination. That it is the gospel of grace that defines every aspect of our community. It's not because we're all the same color, even though we are. It's not because we're all socioeconomic class matching, even though we are. It's because we all found out that there was something transfixing in Jesus. And we're hoping he transforms us into a community that doesn't look as uniform as we might look right now, right? We long for that transformation. But here's the deal. You start to quiz people for exactly what it is that motivated them into the kingdom, and you get all kinds of different answers. For some people, I heard one preacher break it down this way. He said, for some people, they embrace what we might call the information view of Christianity. That is, I'm a Christian because I've subscribed I don't know, in some semi-official way, to a set of teachings in the Bible. Those are my views. So, of course, I'm a Christian, right? But here's the deal. That doesn't come anywhere close to containing what Peter's talking about here. The second kind is what we might call the ethical people. They look and they say, well, you know, the ethical code that is given to us in the Bible, that's my ethical code. And so there, of course, I'm a Christian. (laughs) But here's the deal. That doesn't come close to be big enough to what Peter's talking about. Thirdly, there's some people that go with what we might call the mystical view. The mystical view basically says, I had an experience in my past that I can't explain. Something overwhelming happened. And I had an insight, an experience, a power encounter. And that's what made me a Christian. But y'all, even those highly subjective experiences, that's not what the angels are doing. (laughs) The angels are longing for this. They look into this, they gaze at this, they are endlessly fascinated by it. And it's so funny though how we betray this in the way that we talk. When I was on campus for years, I used to hear students say things like, oh goodness, are we gonna talk about this again? I already know all this. I've already gotten all this. Which was always kind of funny because even when you began to quiz them on the the most basic aspects of the doctrines of grace, it came up short almost all the time. But here's the deal. A Christian never says that. We're gonna talk about grace? Look, I know all that. Look, I'm looking for the advanced stuff. I'm looking for the, for the extra sort of uh, uh, lessons out there that'll, that'll really bring me into true Christian discipleship, real transformation. But here's the thing. The angels haven't gotten tired of looking at that yet. They've come to see that this, this multi-dimensional nature of the gospel that has endless insights into our character. One commentator said, Have you discovered the bottomlessness of the gospel? Well, if we haven't, it means we probably have a very light view of grace. See, this is the deal. We look and we can say, Oh, grace, 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 blah, 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 blah. But whoa, 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 whoa. what do you think that grace is? I would argue that for most of us, our, our initial conception of grace is what we would describe as unconditional love. I'm so grateful for the the love that the Father bestowed upon me as a a, a poor person. And and there's a measure of gratitude that comes out of someone being kind to me. But it's mostly sentimental, isn't it? But that's not the kind of grace that we're talking about in the Bible. The Bible does not teach God's love for us as being unconditional. It actually teaches it as being contra-conditional. In other words, it's against what you think someone should have gotten. It's contrary to what you thought. If someone does something gracious for you, you look and you say to yourself, okay, that moves me. But when someone comes to you when you've actually done harm against them and you begin to realize, I'll never be able to pay this back, you suddenly realize, you do the accounting, right? And you realize the numbers are too big now. I'm too far. When that kind of person shows you grace, you will know. When you get grace from someone who owes you opposition, or speak in, speak in wider terms, who owes you litigation. How about that? When you get grace from that kind of person, you know you'll be able to tell that you got it because it intimidates you. That's the trick. You know when grace moves in because when all of a sudden that kind of grace comes into your life, you feel threatened because if that person gives me grace, I will never be in control of my life ever again. I have to follow him. And it's threatening And you realize that in order for me to accept this grace, I gotta give it all up. I've got nothing left, I got no other leg to stand on. That's how you know you've met real grace. And I tell you what, there's not a better example of this, I think, than comes from Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, where in the opening parts of the story when you have the hero, Jean Valjean, having escaped from prison, is taken in by a kindly priest. And Valjean, sort of going back to his old ways, uh, steals one of the priest's candlesticks and makes off into the night. But of course, he's quickly captured by the authorities who drag him back to the priest and say, who is this guy? If you know anything about the story, the priest looks at him and goes, oh, no, 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 of course I gave him that candlestick. Hey, Jean, you forgot the other candlestick that I gave you as well. All of a sudden, you begin to realize that priest did not just give him some sort of love and affection. He gave something to someone who deserved the opposite He gave it to a thief. Okay, with that set up, listen to this passage. This is amazing. Valjean didn't know if he had been touched or humiliated. (laughs) In opposition to this celestial kindness, he began to summon up his pride. The priest's pardon was the most formidable attack he had ever sustained. He felt his hardness of heart would be complete if he could just resist this kindness. That if he yielded to it, he would have to then renounce the hatred with which his mistreatment by others had filled his soul and then which he had finally found satisfaction. (laughs) In the face of this assault, he knew he either had to conquer or be conquered. That's grace. (laughs) You know when grace has gotten into your heart and when God begins to open up and show you the parts of yourself that you're not proud of, and it happens over and over and over again. And we sing, If thou hast drawn a thousand times, oh Lord, draw me again. And he does. In the face of that grace that is so undeserving, what you begin to feel is your autonomy slipping away. I can't be in control of my life, I can't just walk away from this. And it is crazy threatening. To be honest with you, it takes a ton of faith to turn your life over to Christ. Because you simultaneously, like Valjean, you feel both touched and humiliated at the exact same time. That's the paradox of grace. Here's the crazy thing. It never gets old. At least not to the angels. Why? Well, because even though they're greater in power, God's people are greater in privilege. How? Well, because we have something the angels don't have. Jesus did something for his people that he never did for angels. We know this. If if somehow we could talk to an angel and ask, man, what's got you so curious? Why are you so interested in my little life? Have a feeling that the angel would say, because I have a creator. You have a redeemer. I can't stop looking at it. And I'm fixated on it. I mean, what if this Christmas was a time in which we saw what the angels saw and became fascinated by that grace that comes in the gospel? Maybe that could plow through the sentimentality of the season. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's not just sentimentality. It's also loneliness for many of us. Many of us have mourned the fact that we won't be able to have access to our families in the way in which we had hoped we would in the way in which we normally would. So we ask that you would in these last few moments before we close our worship, inhabit our praise, that we would hear the words that the angels, the angels scream, hark, there's there's glory that has come to earth, and it's come to a newborn king. So Father, we pray that as those notes and words leave our mouths, they would transform us as they do and make us into a people who are incredibly threatened, but also incredibly comforted by a grace that's going to change us. Would you do that in this season? We ask it all in Jesus' name.